I just want to say uh, hello to everyone, and I want to welcome two really great folks from McKinch Street. So we have Dale and Matt here with us, one representing the Spokane office and one representing the Seattle office here. So we're pretty excited to have them with us here. I'm going to give you both a chance to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit more about yourself. And uh, feel free to throw in a fun fact for me there, too, if you want. You want to start, Matt? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Julia. Excited to be here. Excited to be with some some colleagues that I've worked with in the past and some guest lecturing opportunities at the Construction Management School at Wazoo. So this is kind of fun to be on this official recording that I've heard so much about. Yeah, my name is Matt Allen. My, I recently moved into a role of Chief Client Officer here at McKinstry, but I've had a bit of a diverse experience in my time in the industry. I've been in the industry for about 15 years and at McKinstry for about 13 years. I started out doing uh, building automation and controls, which is, you know, an interesting kind of blip on the radar for my career, but I think it's pretty topical. Uh, and I still hearken back to that experience, you know, for, for this conversation uh, about building operations and things like that. And came over to McKinstry, I've been in our construction line of business, doing the construction management track, essentially. So started as a project engineer on the, unfortunately, on the UW Life Sciences building over in, over in uh, Seattle, I say, unfortunately, just knowing that I'm with some cougs here. Uh, but kind of got we'll, into we'll let this, it slide this time. Uh, yeah, we, I got <laughs> got into a little bit of a niche on the construction management track in life sciences, research, biotech, like those sorts of projects, commercial office and stuff along the way as well, but, but predominantly in life sciences. So I went through the project management track, became a project manager, senior project manager, then took a little bit of a you know break, I guess we'll call it, to work on technology and innovation in our construction line of business. So got really into BIM and 3D modeling and 3D scanning and some of the kind of innovative technologies on the construction kind of project delivery side. So I did that for a couple of years and kind of got back into a little bit more of a business development sales role. We, we have a kind of strong seller doer culture, we call it. So you got to sell the job, but then have to kind of carry it into delivery. So I did that for a couple of years. And then now I'm in this chief client officer role and the Job duties are, are basically to focus on our kind of biggest legacy and sometimes kind of most complex customers that we touch in a variety of different ways and be really centered with them on what are their problem statements and where the opportunities that McKinstry has to, you know, to create the greatest impact across kind of all of our offerings. You know, folks that know McKinstry know we've gotten pretty big and, and broad and kind of proud of the diversity of all the things we can do to kind of drive efficiency in the built environment, but sometimes you're realizing you need kind of an organizing mechanism uh, when you're working with those big portfolio clients, like, like a Washington State University, for instance, that has kind of big energy challenges, kind of big building portfolio and that sort of thing. So super excited about this new role and super excited to be here talking about uh, building operations, energy efficiency. Awesome. Well, thank you. Dale, excited to hear more about you. Okay. Dale Silla. Regional Vice President across the Pacific Northwest. And so I manage our businesses in Montana, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon, specifically related to high performance design build renovations, renewable energy, energy efficiency, operational excellence, and performance management. And so it's a variety of project and consulting services that provide clients across the Northwest. Um, I've been in the industry for about 35 years, 
starting out in uh, with a design firm doing energy studies and assessments uh, many, many years ago. I have a background in mechanical engineering and then an MBA. So I kind of crossed the technical business sides of this space and have worked in a variety of different places from development and engineering to sales, business management, and now kind of broader based business management. So excited to be here and talk about what's happening in the industry and what kinds of things we're doing at McKinstry to make the building environment more efficient and better. Awesome. It's so great to hear that both of you have such diverse backgrounds too. I think that makes you not only really good at a lot of different things, but gives you a good perspective on a lot of things that are happening out there. So pretty excited to hear that from both of you. So Matt, you briefly mentioned talking to, you know, our MAP group of students and doing guest lectures and stuff like that. And what we really like to do is tie together how business and design and construction really kind of impact each other. And if, if you're able to kind of individually speak on this, talking about both the design and construction industry, it's like, how does what you do as an individual in your company really affect that? Yeah, I think that in the role I'm in right now, you know, McKintry finds itself in a place where, you know, we started as a mechanical contractor that was just doing kind of plumbing, heating, air conditioning, that sort of thing, just on the build phase. And then we kind of slowly added service. And then we added sheet metal capabilities. Then we tacked on uh, fire protection and then eventually electrical, then in Dale's group in, in energy services and ESCO projects and existing buildings and kind of so on and so forth have kind of built this kind of whole, you know, suite, suite of services. And I think that, you know, as we built this platform, as we like to call it right now, I think what we're focused on now, like is customers that have big complex building problems to solve, both with building new buildings and then having existing portfolio. And I think that from our standpoint, we want to form partnerships with those folks to like do these kind of deep listening sessions and stay really close to like precisely what their needs are to make sure that we can kind of fit in very specifically for what those problem statements are and not kind of blindly sell what, what we have to them and kind of come up with in, innovative solutions and make sure we're aligning our strategy and innovation that we're focused on to try to fill those needs, to try to drive efficiency in buildings. You know, I think, I think today's, you know, in today's world, building owners have a lot of challenges. And one of those challenges is the ongoing operational costs of those buildings. Another is staffing and just trying to attract and retain staff that have to deal with ever more increasingly complex buildings. And then managing to all the legislative and code changes and clean energy, it's a big lift. And so being able to begin a design process, whether it's new construction or even just renovation type work with kind of that end in mind that while these buildings have to be operable, they've got to be simple enough that somebody can operate them, but yet complex enough to meet all of the energy codes and compliance issues, indoor air quality and all the, the other challenges today. And then be cost effective enough that owners can afford to maintain, own, and operate the buildings over a long period of time. So, you know, in today's world, 
first cost is just one of many factors going into buildings where in the past it might have been the predominant factor that people looked at. So being able to integrate designers with actual operators of buildings, with maintenance staff, with commissioning agents, and then with construction teams enables a better outcome. And so, you know, in the old world of design, oftentimes a lot of premium was put on the innovation of design with the contractor like to figure out how to actually get it built. And so today we're trying to integrate and marry those two so that we can integrate more efficient supply chain, use better construction methodologies to, to, to make the design more efficient and more innovative and in some ways even get some of the construction out of the field and into a, uh, more of a factory setting so that instead of having 13 contractors on site all stepping on each other's toes, things show up more pre-built and allows the construction process to be a little more streamlined and more cost efficient. So design is essential and integrated into everything we do, but now the construction trades, operation maintenance, and performance management are also integrated at the same time. I've got to be real. I don't remember the original question either, but you both answered that beautifully. Whatever the question was, I don't remember, but I pulled out from each of you. Uh, integrated, integrated and innovative. And I've toured uh, actually your Spokane shop and your Seattle shops, and they're they're just they're amazing. Like everything you guys are putting together and you're doing and how streamlined it is. Can you walk us through a little bit? Like how, what does that process look like when you're working with other folks, whether that's on the design side or the construction side? Um, how do y'all fit into that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Dale kind of alluded to this earlier, but, you know, starting with the end in mind is a thing that we like commonly talk about, uh, internally. So, we like to work on projects where we get integrated during the design phase, whether we actually are the designer or just the builder that's partnering with a consulting engineering firm. But we, we like to get on kind of negotiated qualifications based sorts of projects when we can, because we think we can drive kind of better long term outcomes if we can get engaged earlier. And I think, you know, Dale, Dale hit on this well. We have this kind of manufacturing mindset that we that we really operate under that. Um, really drives a lot of our thinking and how we engage with other design partners, whether it's a McKinstry designer and it's integrated design build sort of format, or if it's more of a design assist sort of role. But a lot of times the role we try to play, so, you know, if an architect draws out the, the building, you know, mechanical, electrical, structural engineers are kind of partnering to get the conceptual piece laid out is try to be the constructability expert and the kind of manufacturing expert along the way to kind of partner with the designer who has a hard enough job kind of understanding what's the load profile of the building, uh, what is the occupancy uses, how do you kind of meet all the complex codes that Dale alluded to that are starting to emerge. I mean, that, there's a big enough job there, but where do we kind of integrate ourselves to make sure that when the systems are installed, they're clean, they're in, designed in a way that you can take the work off site and create kind of modular components to put the building together. We think that drives waste out of the construction process and streamlines everything, not just for McKinstry on a project, maybe as a mechanical electrical contractor, but the, the wall framer and the other trades that are acting. I and mean, if you can, you know, put the, 
you know, design the building in a way that can create modular components in the construction phase, you can drive a lot more efficiency on the site. And the other piece, you know, that Dale kind of alluded to when thinking about the end in mind is you're trying to create efficiency when you're in the field installing it, but you're also trying to think about the total building life cycle costs for the systems that you're installing. So, you know, a lot of the projects I've been on, been fortunate enough to have really forward thinking customers that are 50, 60, 100 year owners of their buildings, or at least that's kind of the mindset that they have. And so they're willing to invest in a little bit of kind of upfront additional design considerations to analyze you know, projected energy usage over the life cycle of that system, um, or look at carbon emissions associated with the energy usage and the you know, energy profile of the building, um, and kind of study things from you know, a multi-dimensional lens. Um, so that the the client at the end of the day, you know, to Dale's point, it's not just about the first cost of the building, but what is this building going to cost, you know, to operate it throughout its life cycle. And we think that if customers can, you know, make that sometimes tough decision, you know, with capital constraints to make that investment up front, you know, we can actually even model it out financially sometimes in partnership with the, the customer to show what the return is they can get on that upfront design investment to kind of slow down and you know, think about so what some of those long-term considerations are. Yeah, and I I understand that the constraints tagline is for the life of your building, right? Then you're talking about the whole building and what that looks like over an extended period of time. When once you guys have already established, you know, the direction of design and you're working through the project, how do you consider or coach building owners or whomever is going to actually be maintaining it for that life of the building as far as energy management goes with all of these complex systems you know that we have i'm sure we both have answers dale but I'll, i can let you go first or take yeah, I, I, can, I can start matt matt's got a great example with the uh, recent medical school building in spokane that he was the project executive on um you know and i think relative to that ongoing operations, it's always it's always easier to build in the protocols and approach as it's being built or and as it's being designed as opposed to waiting till after the fact. And so one of the challenges you know today is a building's designed and then it's built by a contractor. Everybody wipes their hands, gives the owner the keys, and the owner's like, Okay, what do I do now? How do I how do I get this thing tuned in over the next two years? And it's hard. And so not having the staff and not having maybe even the expertise um, to be able to do that, we've started providing services called uh, transitional occupied, you know, uh, operations. And so in that transitional services, we might help build out preventive maintenance plans for the owner build out protocols and operational procedures, build in the software and analytics tools to pull out key data elements that will ultimately help owners make better decisions and fine tune the operations over time. You can do that after the fact, but it's a lot harder. And, and most building owners don't have the staff to be able to like get all that work done, let alone the knowledge base to like put it all together. And, and so we're trying to make this, this transition between a building being built and like optimized operation, smoother, easier, more manageable by the client. And at the same time efficient so that the owner 
can actually get it done. Um, so I'll stop there. And and Matt, um, maybe any examples you might have would be great. Yeah, no, I, I for sure. I kind of two things come to mind, Dale. I mean, Dale articulated it really well. Is one actually? I'll talk a little bit next about the the A40 Spokane project, the regional health partnership building with Gonzaga and University of Washington Medicine. But even before that, you know, Dale spot on. I think the at building turnover when we're handing over the system operation to the building owner or the operator that they've hired, you know, that transition to sustainable occupancy offering that we've kind of developed because of that market need that was there. You know, I've heard, I was talking with one of Dale's team members with one of the, uh, one of their clients that they had been doing that service for, for years. And they had kind of recently expressed that, man, you know, with the new energy codes that are coming online in Washington state, city of Seattle, the, the stricter energy codes, you know, in, in Washington state are basically creating are necessitating that the, the design complexity is is way more enhanced. There's you know heat recovery systems, the controls instrumentation that's required to operate some of these systems is incredibly complex. I mean there's no on-off switches and then set it and forget it sort of operations in these commercial construction instances. And so you know the burden that Dale mentioned that's put on the operators to get these systems running is really complicated. And so where we saw where you know, that TSO offering that we mentioned, transition sustainable operations was, hey, maybe it was a couple of few weeks. Like to, to Dale's point, we have some software tools, we have some data and technology tools that we put together to kind of help pull out the key piece of information, get it simplified for the customer when they receive, you know, that building turnover packet. Um, and we help with kind of owner training of systems and organizing all those sorts of things. But the customer is saying now, like, man, a couple few weeks is definitely not enough time. You know, we, we, we want to look at six months of you kind of riding shotgun with us while we're trying to figure out how to operate these things. And to Dale's point, it could be a combination of lack of staff to operate some of the increasingly complex systems, or it could just be that, you know, the, the training required you know, to operate these systems isn't quite keeping up with the pace that the energy code's evolving, that the new instrumentation technology is coming online. So there's just a, a starting to be a call for kind of even an enhanced level uh, of service. And in certain cases, even customers asking around kind of early analytics around the performance of the building, especially if there's, you know, EUI targets, energy uses intensity targets, and, and you know, lead goals, and, you know, all of these kind of you know, living building kind of institution challenges and stuff like to, to actually do the audits on, on those pieces to kind of validate that you're in compliance with what those goals are. I mean, it's really complex and people are looking for partners, you know, outside of their core operations team to make that work. So anyway, that, that was one point that yeah. kind of Dale's, Dale's piece made me think of when it came, when it comes to this 840 Spokane project that we worked on, um, it's a health sciences building in some sense, but it's a lot of it's kind of a teaching lab. And, you know, one of the things that that we really focus on was being really diligent and thorough in that data accumulation for our owner turnover package. I mean, I think what we like about these projects where we're the developer is we kind of get to eat our own dog food in a way where we kind of get to make sure that when we hire an integrated MEP design builder like our, ourselves, that we, we actually really need to put our money where our mouth is and kind of deliver at a high level. But we also try to experiment with kind of new delivery modalities um, for how we want to design the building, how we want to turn it over, how we want to think about operating it. 
So on that 840 Spokane project, uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about building technology systems. That was probably the big focus. We had an open loop ground source heat pump system, heat recovery chiller, very sophisticated, energy efficient HVAC system for sure. But I think the most innovative thing we we're working on was trying to kind of bind together all the low voltage systems and have an integrated design process for that. Because our, our thesis was that the technology for security, audiovisual, building automation controls, you know, audiovisual networking, security, all, all these sorts of low voltage communication systems, you know, in a true smart building future that we all dream of. And you think of your home and the kind of Amazon Alexa sort of turn my lights on, you know, move the blind, you know, close the blind sort of mentality. You know, the commercial world hasn't really caught up with that yet because there's so such a kind of siloed delivery of all those systems. So we really tried to kind of bring those pieces together and engage those sub sub tier partners some of them self-performed by McKintree some of them are subcontractor partners and bring those in in design in the design phase to kind of think through how the cabling gets laid out how all the systems are organized in part to have a better building on day one that was one of the goals but the other realization we had was that we don't know what the technology is going to look like in five to ten years I mean we you know, Dale and I have certainly pride ourselves and people at McIntyre on trying to kind of have the, the you know, magic ball to know what the future is going to be. But sometimes we can't spot all the innovative technologies that come out. But we thought, how do you design a flexible enough system in the future so you don't have to gut your whole building to kind of get it up in 10 years when there's a whole new set of technologies that come out? So I think that, you know, Dale and I were chatting about this before this, 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 uh, this engagement is. You know, there's super innovative, cool software technologies that are emerging, but some of the most innovative things we think we're doing is just creating better process and getting humans kind of trained to actually operate those things. I think having the humans trained coupled with the technology, there isn't going to be an easy button is I think what we're getting at there. I mean, it's going to be a combination of the human capital with the kind of innovative technology that's going to be out there. Because I think like in the age of AI and people thinking that you're just going to slap some solution on top. I mean, the, the, the built environment, from our opinion, is, is just kind of too complex to just drop some simple solution. AI is going to figure it out. It will be extremely disruptive. Don't get me wrong, but there's going to be a big human component uh, along the way to kind of get it to that future utopia state. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. That I just went to a conference last week and uh, all the stuff that's happening with AI is just insane but then there's a huge piece of that like when you think about uh you've talked a lot about training the building operators but then there's also this whole piece of like educating your occupants right and like how do people actually use the building and how does that maximize energy efficiency like or not right because they could do stuff that totally messes up your system so i'm gonna i'm gonna unpack everything you just said because like you got a lot of great stuff in there. So you actually went right into one of the questions we had for you. It was looking at, you know, how how you all are using technology and data to help your clients kind of meet this new legislation that's coming out in Washington. So I think I want to just like pause on that one for a second and talk about what you all have learned so far with some of the new kind of climate and carbon laws that are coming out and like how that's been a challenge, maybe your new builds, but also I know there's a huge challenge with some retrofits happening and people wondering like, how the heck am I even gonna meet this? So 
Can the two of you talk on that for just a little bit? Yeah. So even within your question, there's like five questions within that. So my bad. <laughs> I, I'll maybe start with the, the broader legislation. So clean building performance standards is a legislation that was passed a couple of years ago uh, and requires buildings to meet an efficient threshold or, or face fines in the future. So it's pretty significant. Many people are very concerned about that. There's also a recent bill that just passed and was signed a couple of weeks ago. It's called House Bill 1390, and it provides an alternative pathway for those with central distributed energy systems. And that pathway requires a, a full-blown decarbonization plan uh, for a 15-year view and horizon. So building owners today, depending on whether they have central plants and distributed energy systems, have a couple pathways to get there. The, the challenge is it can be expensive. Uh, it can also be fairly easy with low cost, no cost improvements to get there. So most clients need to not only put together an energy plan to meet these new codes, uh, but they also need to provide an operation and maintenance plan. And if they go down the alternative pathway, they need a decarbonization plan. So a lot more planning required. I think it's getting at the heart of some great creative things we can do to get more efficient. But now the gap is, okay, if you can't get there with uh, training occupants and to have different behaviors and to be more efficient. So, you know, we've, we've worked with occupant behavior programs and even staff behavior programs. And we can oftentimes get 10% of the energy consumption out of the building by just working with staff mm -hmm. and protocols and tenant behaviors and things like that. The reality is at the end of the day, people are in a building because they want an efficient environment. And so it, that's rule one. We have to provide that environment within the building and that can't be sacrificed by trying to get more efficient with energy. What we can do is stretch the guardrails a little bit about what's acceptable or not acceptable. And so that can help. And ultimately, once we've gone through work with the tenants and there's some education involved, maybe stretching the parameters of what's an acceptable temperature environment, making sure we're meeting clean air standards, then there's typically some capital project work that needs to be taken care of. And that's where the hiccup is. So uh, there's not enough funding available to do all the capital work that needs to be done to comply, make every building comply. Right. So enter in new funding mechanisms. So the IRA uh, through the federal government has got a lot of tax incentives for creative and innovative energy technologies. So that's one pathway. There's another house bill that just got um, passed, which is 1777, and that enables public clients to utilize private money to do efficiency enhancements to where maybe they don't have the de debt capacity or the capital. They can utilize private capital and pay that back out of the savings that occur from implementing certain technologies or clean energy systems. Um, it, that that could be a whole nother podcast. So yeah. We, yeah. Won't, we won't go into that, but just know that there's there's now the funding strategies are becoming more and more critical 
to enable people to get all the things that they need to get done to comply you know, with this legislation and some of the new requirements and building codes. Um, I'll maybe, I'll stop there, Matt, see if you've got <laughs> other things to add. No, I mean, Dale, yeah, Dale just nailed it. I mean, very kind of succinctly, succinctly laid it out, um, I think in, in a pretty clear way to understand. I, yeah, I think it's interesting, Julie, you know, talking to you guys at Washington State, you know, Dale brought up House Bill 1390. I think a lot of that is kind of built around when you have large campuses with central utility systems and like probably the more durable long-term solution that's probably best to meet those clean energy goals and net net zero goals are not to kind of like pick off buildings individually I mean, and, and and recognizing too that it's very onerous from a financial perspective that, that Dale laid out so yeah. trying to give a little bit of a different treatment to those campuses that have uh, infrastructure that's sometimes over 100 years old and you know it's really hard to kind of unwind that and put the toothpaste back in the tube um, so if you're going to go through that difficult process, you know, I think we're, we're excited that that house bill got passed because I think we think it's good that large institutions, you know, that have those complex infrastructure problems, you have alternative pathways um, and a little bit of a, you know, different timeline to kind of figure out what their solution is going to be. We, I was talking to a client in a similar situation. And I think they had a they had a great comment. You know, a lot of the legislation you know, whether it's the Clean Building Performance Act or, you know, Washington State Energy Code is obviously pushing people off natural gas to go all electric. It's pushing people to heat pumps, right, as kind of a more efficient heating and cooling kind of base system option. Um, and so I think building by building, they want to kind of try to get building owners on board with that and, you know, be aggressive, but also at the same time to meet the goals at the same time, you don't need to give some you know, leeway because it is capital intensive to Dale's to Dale's point. Um, but this client said, you know, hey, we have a bunch of different buildings, distributed energy system, district energy. We want to solve this problem. We're 100 percent committed around what Washington State's goals are and mission aligned in that sense. But we don't want, you know, for 200 buildings, 200 individual heat pumps. And I think at McKinstry, I think we do have that kind of core belief that distributed energy systems that you know, buildings have different energy heating and cooling profiles. Um, there's opportunities to do sharing and storage and, you know, think about, you know, when is the you know, peak demand for energy and trying to be kind of smart about when you conserve, when you consume that energy, both to save, save money, but also reduce the stress on the grid. Because, you know, in theory, every building in a lot of cases is calling for energy at a similar time. That puts a lot of stress on the grid. And I'm sure we'll kind of get into that a little bit later, but I, I like that comment from one of our clients is, hey, we don't want 200 heat pumps on 200 buildings. You know, we want a more durable long-term legacy system that, that fits in with the kind of old uh, central plant concept that we had. And so as Dale mentioned, you know, House Bill 1390, 1777, you know, it's kind of all, they're all kind of colliding with Washington Clean Buildings Act, the cap and invest program that Washington State is putting in place too. So I think we're, we're keeping our eye out for kind of more pathways that are going to emerge, but I think those those recent house bills are going to help large institutions like Washington State, for instance, uh, solve those problems long term. Yeah, I really like what both of you said about that because it it has been a challenge, and a lot of people are just 
like, well, well, how do we do this if we if we have 50 buildings here on campus that aren't even submetered, right? Like right. the infrastructure isn't even there to figure right. out what the EUI right. is in right. the first place. So I think these alternative pathways are really important, but I also think uh, something you alluded to here is like looking at this common sense wise, big picture, we're trying to save energy and we're trying to reduce carbon. And so there might be solutions that don't look like uh, others, right? If we, if we step back and look at the goal, what do we really need to get to uh, to make that happen? So I think that's Julia, great. Yeah. One, one thing I might add too, you know, in your original question, you were talking about, hey, what, what can be done with analytics and how do you do things yeah. more effectively? And, uh, you know, I think it's really important to recognize that the infrastructure that goes behind buildings to produce energy has to provide enough energy to supply what the building consumes. And if we can fundamentally reduce that, it just takes stress off of all the rest of the systems providing that energy to the building. So one of the things, you know, when we talk about lower cost ways to tackle some of the fundamental problems, we can use data analytics today and dashboarding to like, set up key indicators and profiles for different attributes of the building we might want to measure. It could be temperature, it could be when fans turn on, it could be the amount of airflow required at certain times. Um, but oftentimes that data can be hard to interpret yeah. or uh, you know, the building owner may not have the expertise to understand what to even do with the data. So trying to be able to take that data analytics create some backdoor guardrails um, and analysis that would provide like real information and decision points about how to fundamentally change things to make them more efficient and maintain the building environment. That oftentimes needs to be coupled with a boots on the ground commissioning agent. Mm -hmm. So um, oftentimes our commissioning teams will, will take the analytics have a conversation with a client, discuss strategies, and then go implement it on the spot. Um, and it might be changing set points or control strategies. It also might be just fixing broken things that show right. up when you begin doing these trends, right? And so having somebody to help interpret it, work through with, with the client, and then getting the client staff or a third party to like go get the things fixed, that are fundamentaling the root causes of why things aren't working, that can make a huge impact on just base building consumption. And so when we talk about low cost, no cost things, those are the kind of things we would talk about. And we wanna do those first before we start tackling, you know, the bigger yeah. comprehensive, more expensive type strategies. Yeah, I love your point that you made and kind of building off Dale about like understanding what the baseline is too. Like if you're trying to tackle like a campus decarbonization plan, you, know, you really have to understand what are your underlying EUI profiles of each of the buildings. And you bring up a really good point. I mean, I think whether it's Wazoo or, or, or whatever campus, you know, again, there's another client who, you know, when you have old buildings, you know, a lot of the buildings have pneumatic, old pneumatic controls. Like I never, been a part of a project that had pneumatic controls, but maybe Dale has in his career. But, you know, a lot of buildings, you know, in legacy campuses, you know, ha don't have digital control systems. So you don't have any of that data feedback. I mean, to Dale's point, I mean, we show up a lot of times and 
you know, we have to get a customer started on getting trending working so we can actually get data inputs to start to do some of that analysis. And in some of these campuses, you do need to kind of crawl a little bit to your point before you run of like, let's get the uh, building control system swapped over to digital. Let's get our submittering stack set up. I mean, there's a lot of kind of core underlying infrastructure sort of work that you need to do, which I think it's hard for some you know, clients to have to process because I think they want to get to the promised land right away or, you know, Dale's point, they have aspirations of going really big and making big picture, large infrastructure changes. But there is like a lot of foundational work to your point, Julia, uh, to make sure that you understand, you know, the kind of current state of affairs. And I think that unlocks to Dale's point, some of those low, no cost sort of options to start to take a bite of the apple um, before you get to you know, some of the kind of mega transformation um, sort of opportunities that, that are going to be important for sure in the long run. Um, but you could still kind of, you know, take a bite of things in the short term by getting some of those kind of underlying data pieces figured out. And it's hard. I mean, it's to Dale's point, like the analytics piece, super important. Like these are big data sets that are really hard for humans to process. You, you, know, you can't look at a spreadsheet and you know, find the blitz. I mean, the, the analytics and the visualization piece, I think is critical. The dashboard that Dale mentioned, I mean, I think that's one of the things, places we've been at, able to add a lot of value is helping building operations teams just kind of make sense of the data that they have. Yeah, you guys like translate make, it. Right, yeah. right. To, you know, make those interventions that they can do. In addition to like, that informs your design strategy too. You know, if you there's probably low hanging fruit you can pick off to change operations or occupant behavior and all those sorts of things. But, you know, once you kind of really understand that profile and the energy usage profile, then you can maybe start to think about like, where's the energy sharing potential between certain buildings or what kind of core infrastructure things do we need to get done in order to realize some of those energy sharing opportunities. Here's one, you know, interesting thing. Seems simple, right? Just go get the data out of the building and then do the magic yeah. in the black box and everything comes out great. But AI, AI is going to take care of it, right, Dale? Well, even, yeah, on it's a, done. even on a simple building, there might be 10,000 different data points that are being monitored or measured. And, and even something as simple as what are those? Because Every company that's built those has different programmers, different naming conventions, different mm -hmm. add-ons. And so we do use some AI tools to go in to like suck in within an hour or two all of those data points with naming conventions to understand what kinds of data points they are and how we might utilize them. That's a huge lift. Without that, it would be like virtually impossible to get even to know what the data points are. And then to use other uh, algorithms to like know which ones you actually want to do something with, uh, because just the storage capacity of monitoring, you know, yeah. 10,000 points at five second intervals, it's a lot of data. So being able to have, you know, those backdoor analytics and AI as tools to be able to functionally and practically get the data and make it usable that's a big deal. It's a big topic. And, you know, something we've, we've been working on for quite a while. I wish it were easier. You know, it's yeah. not. But, you know, the fruits of that labor end up being worth it in the long run. And, you know, we're pushing our teams to get faster and faster and more automated at doing that 
so that we can get to the end result faster and help the clients actually manage the buildings better. Right. Yeah, I think I, I love that, Dale. And I, I think I may have mentioned this before, this kind of marriage between the data analytics, sophistication around the software and artificial intelligence, machine learning, all the kind of buzzwords that you hear about, right, that is absolutely part of the promise. I think is one of the kind of key things that's going to get us to this energy efficient future and the decarbonized future that everyone is kind of striving for. And I think a lot of people kind of think that like you can get the systems on autopilot, but we, we have a kind of core belief at McKinstry and kind of startup company that we're in partnership with Avista on building energy management and interaction with the, with the electrical grid as well. But I mean, whether it's McKinsey or Edo, I mean, we, we do have that core belief that it's not just putting the buildings on autopilot, but actually the pilots that are running the system. It's like planes, I guess, you know, it's like people say a lot of the days that the planes fly themselves, but it's still critical to have those pilots in place and, you know, still maintaining operations. And when things go wrong, I mean, it, I know people are going to get worried about automation and jobs and all that sort of thing, not to kind of get into some existential philosophical you know, discussion, but it's important to point out that like there's a really important role of the humans and building operators or even consulting partners like we show up as sometimes to say it's not just the software piece, like you really kind of need a human kind of guiding the thing along the way and that the, the, the software tools and the automation is just augmenting your ability to do that. But we're not doomsday, you know, the jobs are <laughs> going the way of the dodo. I mean, we, we, we think there's a kind of good marriage which you got a huge bit of technology um, to, to try to reach some of these decarbonization goals and energy efficiency goals. Yeah, I think that's so important too. And I like your analogy with a pilot, right? Like, let's say there's a rolling blackout and all the power is done. Then you have to have somebody there who understands how to use the building to actually uh, like make the people happy or you know like alive so one of the two so i i think that's important i also think on the flip side from the operations piece not forgetting about you know we're building these buildings for people so all of these efficiency goals are great and decarbonization but then like ultimately we're trying to make like safe healthy environments for people and i love that I mean, it seems like McKinstry has that lens that you're you're looking at all of those components and you're using really cool tools along the way to kind of make that happen and these great processes and innovations. Uh, so I just, I really love what you all are doing. And I have about a million more questions, but now I'm thinking that we just need like a podcast part due, right? Like, <laughs> uh, keep, keep I, it rolling. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so I have a lot of thoughts here. You guys give us a lot of good stuff to think about, but I'm just... I guess maybe to wrap this up, because I know uh, we've got a hard stop here, but I'm just curious, like, what's your favorite thing you all have done in the last couple of years? Like favorite project, favorite aspect of a company? Big question, but what do you want to leave us with? You know, we've got so many, so many projects I really like. So that's, that's a super hard question. I think one that I'm really excited about in terms of the project and the future, and and it's even less building oriented, but we, we've worked with a client King County to be able to do a lot of innovative and efficient renovations, but we were able to take waste methane out of their waste treatment plant 
be able to scrub it, purify it, and re-inject it back into a natural gas pipeline um, that then enables fleet vehicles to be powered by this. And in the past, all that methane is either just released to atmosphere or flared off and burned to no usable value. And today it's being recaptured, cleaned, scrubbed, uh, and effectively utilized, and thus offsetting other fuels and eliminating it from being burned and put in the atmosphere. So those kind of technologies around clean energy are really amazing. Um, I'm gonna throw one more in here since uh, you didn't say I couldn't do two. But uh, the other one that's really innovative, very interesting is South Landing here where I sit in the Catalyst building. Um, but we've been able to create an eco district system that can move and share energy between buildings and has storage capability with thermal storage, uh, phase change storage, and electrical storage, along with solar PV on the roof. And so it is more of a demonstration scale, but the building has the opportunity to act like a battery and it can absorb energy from the grid, it can deploy energy to the grid. But in partnership with Avista, the local utility here, we're actually researching and experimenting with how much energy could a building system like this absorb when energy is free or a negative value or deploy when we're on the verge of a brownout or blackout. And it's not only an efficiency play, but it's resiliency for the grid and being able to utilize buildings to actually be a contributor rather than a detractor when there are grid management issues. So that one is as well, super exciting and uh, really fun to be a part of. Yeah, those, I don't know if I can top Dale's. I, <laughs> there are so many interesting like projects that we're doing. I mean, we, I think Dale would agree. It's such an exciting time to be at McKinstry where it's like, we have a lot of core beliefs around decarbonization. I think our kind of mission alignment and the types of projects we want to work on is like the market is converging with us really well. And, you know, we got to obviously go execute on all those things and nothing's kind of given. There's a lot of competition out there, but there's a lot of cool opportunity, you know, to work on these really innovative projects that we say, we like to say sometimes have really strong mission alignment with what our people care about, whether it's kind of EV charging stations or energy sharing potential that Dale had mentioned or the methane gas Piece. I mean, there's just all sorts of things where you kind of feel like you're doing something positive for the community um, and for the environment, but you're also working on like really technically complicated, you know, there's think McKinsey are engineers at our core. I mean, I wasn't an engineer personally like Dale, but you kind of, we have that kind of engineering gene. So we like working on hard, complicated projects in that regard. But I think like, I'll, I'll do like a less sexy one that just is more of like a recent um, interesting one that, that that comes to mind. So when we were doing the tenant improvement for McKinstry space that Dale is sitting in right now in the Catalyst building, um, we, we kind of slowed down in the beginning of design. So we we're kind of like building the space for ourselves and we kind of had to kind of weirdly create like a customer. Dale was like our tenant. And then I was working with the project delivery team and the design team to like make sure that Dale got what he wanted out of the space. And we kind of slowed down and had like a kind of pre-design you know, phase where we looked at like really deeply on like what were the goals of the occupant owner in the space. And we looked at indoor air quality and we looked at energy efficiency and we looked at daylighting and we looked at 
building technology systems around automating scheduling for conference rooms and all, all these sorts of these strategies. And uh, it, it was a really fun thing. I mentioned like eating your own dog food, right? I mean, it was like a fun way to like actually consume like the thing that we're selling to customers generally in, in other projects. And so it was just a fun example for me of, you know, loving the work that you do and the ability to try to figure out what is the occupant's needs and priorities. To your earlier point, Julia, I think it is, you know, indoor air quality, engaging experiences with the spaces that you're in, a feeling that, you know, a lot of people want to be in spaces that are energy efficient. They kind of feel better about being in those spaces and like really like actively going through that, not in like, this is my job, like, and I'm supposed to do this for clients, but like, we're actually kind of doing it for ourselves. So yeah. I'd say that was one of the cooler um, recent experiences. And I, Dale had to drop off, but I, I hope I, we created a compelling space for him. <laughs> proud of. I think it's going good. Yeah. I still need to see the final product. I, uh, oh, had, yeah. I had the chance to work on the site for a summer, yeah. but um, yeah, it's such, it's such a great space. I mean, even before it was done, it was a great space. <laughs> well, Hey, I want to thank you so much. Uh, you and Dale for taking the time. I know you're insanely busy and uh, we're, pretty stoked and grateful that we could have the chance to talk to you about all this. Um, you're doing good stuff uh, at McKinstry in general. And just like, I'm super impressed with everything you're doing. Well, thank you. And thanks for your patience, both of Shelby and Julia. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while. So I just, I appreciate <laughs> you guys being patient with me. And I was, I was steadfast and, and committed to the idea of doing it. And now I got through my first kind of podcast jitters, you know, so <laughs> we do part, part two and yeah. Well, I, we seriously appreciate you taking the time. You're just, yeah. you're fun people. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs>